If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 John uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 13, as we look at this portion of God's Word tonight. So 1 John 5, verses 6 through 13. So hear now the word of the Lord. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. Well, John, even though he's been giving us these tests for authentic Christianity, is not trying to discourage you or drive you away. He's trying to ground you and assure you of, the, of your salvation and in part by, by affirming and grounding the historic truths of the Christian faith, particularly those in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to uh, perhaps review that new command that Jesus had given his disciples there in the upper room. So the point in this section that we've read tonight is that uh, John wants to underscore the authority and the testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> and the the way he does the <clears throat> excuse me the way he does that is he first summons three witnesses to come and give clear affirmation to the person and work of Christ. Then he compares a man's testimony with God's testimony and draws out the extreme heinousness of unbelief. And then the third thing that he does is he sums up God's testimony about a redemption in Christ and that we have in him uh, eternal life. So the three witnesses that he draws uh, to our attention, and this is falls very much into... Um, line with the Old Testament principle that every truth must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. So he's going to call three witnesses to come and give testimony about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have in verse 6, first of all, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And so the question that comes up is, okay, this testimony, this witness of the water and the blood, what is that talking about? 
who is it that's giving that witness? What are they giving a testimony to? And there are many commentaries giving different answers. And I'm just going to mention a couple of the others, and then I'm going to settle on the one that is right, the one I think is right. And, and other people do. I'm, I'm definitely not standing on a limb on this one. But some of the other thoughts about what the water and, and the blood have reference to, uh, there are those who believe it has reference to the water and the blood that flowed, the crucifixion, the water and the blood that flowed from Christ's body when the spear pierced him and water and blood flew up, flow out of him. And so they, they look at it as a testimony of the crucifixion. And there are those who look at it as a reference to the two sacraments, uh, the water, baptism, the, uh, the blood, being uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, John Calvin, I think, is one of the ones who believed that. Not, not to be disrespectful of him, but I don't think he's quite right on that. Uh, a third general idea is um, James Boyce makes the point that water and blood could symbolize the Scriptures, and so the witness that John could be calling here is the Word of God. <clears throat> but the one that... Um, I settle on with William Hendrickson and others is that the water has reference to Jesus' baptism and the blood has reference to his death. And they're stated in past tense, so it's looking at a historical event in the past uh, that took place. And so Jesus' earthly ministry is framed on the one hand by his baptism I mean, he was born earlier than that. His presence on this earth was earlier than that. But that was the beginning of his public ministry. And then the conclusion of that uh, public ministry was his crucifixion, was his death. And God the Father um, gave evidence of his approval uh, or presence. His baptism, he said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased at the time of his uh, crucifixion, there were many miracles that took place that demonstrated the work of God at, per, at work in that. And Gordon Clark kind of pulls it all together, sums it up this point, why, why this is a, a helpful way to look at it. Uh, he writes, another reason for interpreting the water as Jesus' baptism is the phrase, not by water only, but by water and by blood. This phrase cannot be intelligibly fitted into the other interpretations. What John had in mind was the view of some heretics who held that Jesus became the Son of God at his baptism and that the Holy Spirit abandoned him on the cross before he died. John, John insists that though the baptism marks his public coming, he also came and accomplished his purpose by dying. The heretical view that only an ordinary man died altogether ruins the idea of a sacrificial satisfaction. And so the, the witness really is Jesus' own life. Uh, the water and the blood that are, that are markers in Jesus' own life is a testimony to the person and work of Christ. Uh, that he is the Son of God, that he did the redeeming work, and it affirms that historical truth for you and I to hold fast to. 
<clears throat> the second witness that John calls to attention is the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's the last part of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So we have the Holy Spirit's witness or testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ uh, as he works through his baptism, uh, before that his birth, through his teaching, through his ministry. And this affirms what Jesus had said in John 15. He said, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. <clears throat> it's the work of the Spirit to testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that was his role. That was what he came to do. And it's interesting that he's called here the Spirit of Truth, which again puts a connection between Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we have the Holy Spirit who, who also is the truth and his testimony is true. And uh, he comes here to testify to the historical validity and truthfulness of the person <clears throat> work of Christ. Now, uh, I'm going to come to <clears throat> sort of this is a, uh, an aside. It's going to be a long aside. Hopefully it's not too tedious. But um, I'm not going to the third witness just yet. We're going to get there. I, mean, I haven't forgotten about that. But what we have in 1 John 5, 7, and 8 is we have a, a troublesome text. If you have the New King James Version in front of you, <clears throat> or, the, <clears throat> excuse me, or the King James Version, this is what, <clears throat> excuse me, this is what you will see. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. There are three that, <clears throat> three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. And so we have a clear statement of the triune God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that's put here in these verses. And if you have more, more or less any other modern translation, you don't have all of that. Uh, the ESV, which I read, has, for there are three that testify for verse 7, and then into verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree. <clears throat> and there's much debate on whether that portion belongs in there or not. That clear statement of the triune God belongs in there or not. And there are very <clears throat> reputable theologians who work to go on each side. I'm going to briefly give you the points of points of view of those. Try not to get too deep in in the weeds on that. Um, it's interesting with a disputed text like this with other disputed texts, there usually is a footnote. Uh, their passage that's debated is either put in the text, and a footnote says it's not in the most earliest 
um, most early manuscripts, or the text is put in the footnote with that notation, and then maybe there's a notation in the text saying why it's not there. You get that with John 8 and the woman caught in adultery. You get it sometimes with uh, Mark 16 and the last portion of that. <clears throat> What's interesting here is uh, in the text that don't include it, they don't say anything. It's just not there, which I think is a little unfair. I think they ought to at least have a reference to it. But at any rate, um, this whole debate gets us into the arena of what is called textual criticism. Now, I want to talk about that for just a moment. Um, it's a good and helpful discipline. Textual criticism is a discipline that is working through and examining the various manuscripts that we have uh, for the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, here particularly thinking of the Greek manuscripts for the New Testament. And what that discipline is doing, not that liberal scholars can't take it and try to undermine the authority of Scripture, but what the discipline is doing is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's helping us to think through the text of Scripture. And um, one of the aspects of textual criticism that comes out is you end up having two families of Greek texts that form the categories of the debate. You have the Byzantine or majority text family of manuscripts which has a greater number of manuscripts to defend their point of view. And then you have the more modern critical text which has the older manuscripts that to defend their point of view. And the, the reason I bring this up is because I don't want any of you to allow yourself to think for one minute that you don't have the Word of God in your hand. None of the debates, none of the differences have anything to do with the core doctrines of the Bible or our Christian faith. Uh, the differences are usually pretty minuscule. And so the critic will say, well, you don't know if you have the Word of God. Yes, you do. Categorically, you have the Word of God in your hand. <clears throat> and this debate should not in any way make you doubt that. And so it's very, very important that you, you understand that. While we, it's a good discipline and it's helpful, it doesn't undermine the truth of the Word of God that you have in your hand in front of you. You can read that and know that that's God speaking to you through His truth. <clears throat> so really quickly, what... What's the, what's the difference of opinion on why this text should or shouldn't be included in this scripture? And a, a passage from John Brown and his systematic theology is on the, on the side of keeping it in there, and he includes a reference to a lot of early documents. doesn't seem to be that he includes any Greek manuscripts until about 800, but nevertheless... Uh, there are this this phrase was used in earlier writings, uh, Christian writings prior to that 
point in t- of time. It seems to f- have made its appearance in a biblical text for the first time roughly around 800 A.D. in the Latin Vulgate. And then from then on, you have uh, its appearance in some Greek texts that uh, come along the way following that. And that's where, so John Brown, uh, John Gill, and others would support that it should belong in there. James Boyce and others would say, uh, there's nothing wrong with what the text is saying, but it wasn't probably written by John uh, because it's not in the earliest manuscripts <clears throat> and um, it, that it, it first appeared in Erasmus' Greek text and came in to the Greek text following him that became the uh, Textus Receptus where the um, that was based upon uh, our King James Version. Uh, so even James Boyce makes the point, there's nothing wrong with what is said in those texts. It just may not, it just appears to be not what John himself wrote. And so if we come down to it, and I kind of lean to the part, the side that says um, it probably wasn't in there, the, with, John probably didn't write it, But what's very important to remember is there's no doubt about the truthfulness of that Trinitarian clause. And we find that truth throughout Scripture. And so it's clearly accurate. It's clearly truthful. So go ahead and read your King James and your New King James. You are reading God's Word. And the truthfulness of that text is not in doubt in any way shape or form. So that's probably a whole lot more than you wanted to hear and uh, you're probably thinking about any kinds of other things. Uh, you can follow, you can, you can read good commentaries and they'll kind of take you through this. But at any rate, the, uh, the truthfulness of what is in that text is not in any way to be debated. <clears throat> so now we come to the third that witness. The third witness is in verse 9. It's the witness of God. Uh, verse 9 is kind of a bridge verse. I'm including it as one of the witnesses. Some people use it to move on to the next section. But what we have in verse 9 is if we, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. And so the testimony, the third testimony, the third witness is God the Father. It's his testimony concerning his son. <clears throat> and so we have the witness of the son's life in the, in, the wa- in the water and the blood. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit to the truthfulness of the person work of Christ. And now we have the witness and the testimony of God the Father about the character of his son. And the the reality of the, the problem that will be brought up here in just a moment, uh, but it's these three witnesses establishing the truthfulness about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what John, I think, is trying to underscore for us that we understand 
doesn't matter what critics come, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, the only Son of God, came, lived, died, and rose again for us and ascended to the right hand of God. So we have the three witnesses. Now we have the testimony of, or the, <clears throat> the sin of unbelief. And it comes out in verses 9 and 10. So we have, uh, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So we have this, this comparison between human testimony, which we accept, and the testimony of God, which some of these people were not accepting. And then he follows that up with, whoever, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. It's the Spirit of God at work in you. Whoever does not believe God is made of a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So we have two things that are drawn out here is God's testimony is greater than human testimony. And along with that is the heinousness of unbelief. So we have this first contrast comparison, if we believe the testimony of man, we ought to certainly believe the testimony of God. Uh, it's interesting, in Judaism, they had a form to specify who could give testimony in a trial. And um, we would find the people unqualified to bear testimony, that would be pretty standard, thieves, criminals, violent people. But they also had on their list uh, shepherds. Uh, I guess they didn't care much. Shepherds were not a very respected profession in that day. Uh, those who were suspected of financial dishonesty, like tax collectors and customs officials. But in one of the lists, they also say people of the land were not qualified to give testimony. That's you and me, common, ordinary folk. Uh, but the rabbis accepted the testimony of anybody they thought worthy. So if they accept the testimony of men, why will they not accept the testimony of God? It's because of their um, terrible unbelief. It was sheer unbelief that kept them from accepting the testimony of God. And it's not just a misfortune, it's, it's a heinous act that they're doing. Uh, John Stott writes, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, it is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him calls God a liar. If you accept the testimony of men, certainly you should accept the testimony of God. And if you won't accept the testimony of God, then you're saying he is a liar. And it brings out the terrible nature of unbelief. It's not that they're misguided, misunderstanding. They know the truth and they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. It parallels what Paul says in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because what they what is is known of God, his eternal power, his glorious attributes is known by them so that they are without excuse. But what do they do? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. The question is sometimes asked, what about the innocent native in Africa? Well, there isn't any innocent native in Africa. There's no innocent person anywhere. They know the truth, and they refuse to believe the truth. They deny it. And it's a uh, a horrible act. It's a sin to be deplored. And then the third part of this is a review again of God's testimony about his son. And what is it about? He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What is the testimony of the three witnesses of God for his Son? It's that through his Son we will have eternal life. And eternal life is not merely unending life. Eternal life is to experience the life of God in us. Uh, Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just a life that will never end, even though that's a, a true fact, Eternal life is a life in relationship with God. It's to have God be a part of our life. It's to know Him. To know His Son and have His Spirit at work in our hearts and lives. That's life. That's real life. That's eternal life. And there's an interesting comparison between the end of John's gospel and this verse 13. <clears throat> toward the end of John, uh, toward the end of the gospel of John and at the end of uh, chapter 20, uh, we have this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John writing his gospel was so that you would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. Now look at verse 13 here in chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Same reason for writing the gospel is the same reason for writing this letter. He wanted God's people to know that they have eternal life and that that life is in the Son. Uh, He's writing this letter to them, to us. And in one sense, perhaps verse 13 is nearly, perhaps even some say it is the end of the letter. 
the end of the letter proper, the body of the letter, and that what follows is kind of a postscript, a PS. <clears throat> but nevertheless, it gives us the clarity of understanding the key point of John so that we would possess eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's your invitation, your calling, and may that be your knowledge and your, your hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word and its truth. Thank you for the testimony it is about your son, Jesus Christ. May you, O oh Father, please uh, help us to know we have eternal life in him, the life that is a life with you. And may we live in the, the strength and the power of that life day by day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.